River Fellowship Podcast. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson takes us through Joshua 3-5. through Do you want to experience God's goodness and have Him do amazing things in you, for you, and through you? If so, practice this prerequisite. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. We're going to be in Joshua's chapters 3 through 5 this morning. In chapter 1, we saw where Joshua, uh, or God was telling Joshua to get ready and gave him some encouraging words as they began to go into the promised land. In chapter 2, we saw where they sent some spies to do some recon, and we see the salvation of Rahab and how Rahab helped in the process of, of, t- of taking Jericho. So we're continuing with this journey with Joshua into the promised land now, verse, in chapters three through five, where now he, they actually go into the promised land, they actually cross the Jordan River. So we want to look at that account and see if we can make some application. Let's look at Joshua chapter three, a snippet of the story, verse one. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among you. In these chapters, we see where Joshua gives instructions on how to cross the Jordan. Then we see them actually crossing the Jordan, and then they set up camp in Gilgal for a season. There at Gilgal, we see where they, they build this monument, this memorial with the 12 stones that we mentioned last week. Before I get into the main thought of really what I want to camp out and talk to you about this morning, I want to mention just a few truths about God that I see in this passage, Um, just as passing. We don't have time to to really develop them and spend much time on any of these, but hopefully these truths maybe be a a word for some of us this morning. The first one's in verse 1. It says, where they camped before crossing over. They were in Shittim, they got to the Jordan, and before they crossed the Jordan, they camped out there for a season. With my research, the best I could come up with was from Shittim to where they camped was probably about 560 miles. So say they walked three miles an hour, they traveled for 10 hours a day, it would have taken them 18 or 19 days to get there. So let's just say three weeks. They traveled for three weeks. Now remember, We're talking about a million plus people. We're talking about all the the livestock, the animals, all their possessions, all the tents, all this stuff. It's like moving a city. Just imagine how much effort. Those of you that deal with logistics, just get an idea of the logistics of that. So for three weeks, they're moving all of this stuff and they camp. They have to be weary. They have to be tired. They have to be just worn out. So they need a point of, of rest. Here's the truth about God, and that is that God moves in waves. You may say God moves in seasons. Ecclesiastes calls it times. There's a time for everything. The reality is there is a season to move, but there's also a season to wait. There's a season to fight and do battle, but there's a season to rest. 
There is a season for activity, but there's a season for planning. And the resting and the waiting and the planning is just as important as the battling and the fighting and the moving. So the truth here is that we need to learn to rest and to wait. After a great spiritual victory that you may have in your life, or maybe a great spiritual battle that you encounter in your life, maybe a great season of testing that you've endured, just know that after that's going to come a season of rest. Use it. Utilize it. Enjoy it. And use it as preparation for the next time God's going to do something. Here's a second truth. It's in verses 3 and 4. It says, when you see the Ark of the Covenant, move out from your positions and follow it. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, it, it went first. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. So God's moving out in front of the people and showing the way. Here's the truth about God. God has great timing and great direction. In fact, God has perfect timing, great direction. That's good news for people like me who are a little directionally challenged a little bit. I can drive around and puck it, and I have no idea what direction's what. God's got perfect direction. And sometimes in our life, in spiritual life, we can get the same way. We can kind of be running around in life, and pretty soon we have, no, we have no idea where we are, what we're doing, where we're going. But God's got perfect timing. He's got perfect direction. He knows where to lead us, when to lead us, and how to lead us. Sometimes we want to go our own direction. Sometimes we want to do our own thing. Sometimes we want to do it in our own time. If we'll wait on God, if we'll learn to wait and follow him, that's the truth here. If we'll wait, God will show us his timing and he'll show us his direction and that's when we move. In the passage, it's, it's, it's interesting that he, God makes his timing and direction just obvious. The Jordan River's in flood stage and then all of a sudden it's completely dry. <laughs> it's pretty obvious for an Israelite they're looking, because that was a flood and now it's dry, that's where I'm going and now it's time to go. Made it obvious. He'll do the same thing for us. When God's calling us to do something, if we're waiting, just know that God will always make his timing and his direction obvious to us if we're willing to wait. Why do we need his timing? Why do we need his direction? Verse 4 tells us, so you'll know which way to go. Because you've never been this way before. None of us have lived today. We don't know what our next minute, our next hour, the next day, the next week. We have no idea what's before us. But God does because he's gone before us. That's why we trust his timing and his direction. The next truth in uh, verses 14 through 17. Verse 14 says, So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priest who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon, while in the river flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, which was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed and passed on dry ground. The river was at flood stage. Historians say that, especially at that time, in that uh, um, period of time, that it would have been extremely difficult for anyone to cross the Jordan River, but it would have been impossible for some people to cross. Now, if you put this in the context of all of these people and all this livestock and all their possessions and all their stuff, it would have been impossible for them to successfully cross the Jordan River. So what did he do? He made dry ground. 
Now, the Jordan River served as a barrier for the Israelites to get to where God had called them to be. So here's the truth about God. God removes barriers. In fact, God removes every single barrier that's in your way. There's no barrier that God cannot move and will not move. There's nothing in your life that you're facing right now that God cannot remove that barrier and help you get through and over to the other side for victory over that situation because God removes those barriers. Here's the fourth truth. In verse five, it says, tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. This truth has captivated me this week and here's the truth. God is amazing. God is absolutely amazing. We use that word a lot. It's lost some of its meaning. But God's amazing. Imagine if you're the Israelites. You've been in the wilderness. You've had all that experience. Now this mass of people and stuff has spent three weeks camping out. They're about to cross the Jordan. They know what lies ahead of them with all of it. Well, they don't know everything, but they know it. There are people. There's going to be battles. They're going to be fighting because they have men that are armed. They're ready to do battle. They know that's going to be a, a difficult task. So who, who knows what's going on in their mind and in their hearts and in their spirits. But then Joshua comes to them and says, tomorrow God is going to do amazing things among you. Imagine their excitement. Imagine their anticipation Imagine their expectation of what that is really going to look like. Let's apply it to our own life. What if you, every night when you went to bed, you knew and you believed and you trusted and you expected that tomorrow God's going to do amazing things in me and for me and through me? What if as a church family, every Saturday night, when we went to bed, we knew and we believed and we trusted and we expected and we anticipated that when we come gather in the morning, God is going to do amazing things in us and among us. What a difference that would make in how we approach that day, how we approach this service. And that's the truth about God because he still wants to be amazing. He still wants to prove himself amazing among us. But we see a catch. There's a catch to this. It seems like we have to position ourselves in order to see God do amazing things in us. And this is where I want to camp out on for a while. Here's the main thought. It's in verse 5. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate yourselves. It seems as if there's a prerequisite for experiencing the amazing things, and that's consecration. So that's what I want to talk about really this morning. Consecrate yourselves. What does consecration mean? Now, before I get into it, let me make a... Uh, one comment, because I don't want any confusion. We cannot consecrate ourselves. <laughs> In the true meaning of the word, consecration, sanctification, purification, we cannot spiritually 
purify or consecrate ourselves. That only comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. When we give our life to Jesus Christ, he comes, he cleanses us, he, he consecrates us, he purifies us, he sanctifies us, he saves us. That's a work of God, not a work of ourselves, okay? So that's step number one. So if you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. That's step one. That's the beginning point. And please, don't leave this morning without knowing for sure that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's, that's step one. Everything else is a wash without that. So understand that. But there's another dynamic to consecration beyond that of how that consecration expresses itself in my daily life. And that's what we're talking about this morning, all right? It's not the salvation part of consecration. It's now, how do we manifest a consecrated life? What does that mean? What does that look like? That's, that's what we're talking about. So to help me do that, I've got a few items I want to show you. I want to introduce these items. We'll talk about them more specifically in a moment. But here I have some china, a fence picket, my wedding ring, and then an old school branding iron, okay? I want you to think about what do those four things have in common? How do they relate to one another? Well, I'll get specific in a moment, but obviously, generally speaking, they all have something to do with an element of consecration. So let's look at what it means to consecrate yourselves. For the Israelites, to consecrate themselves would have some external um, ritualistic practices that would have internal spiritual significance. For example, they might, to consecrate themselves, they may take a bath. If there's not enough water where they are, then they might just wash their hands. Uh, they would wash their clothes. Again, if there's not enough water, then they would just change their clothes. But they'd have some things like that that would be external that would represent an internal dynamic. We don't have those same ritualistic practices. For us, it's internal. But here's what consecration means. It means to wholly dedicate myself to something of greatest importance. I'm going to wholly dedicate myself to something of greatest importance. It means setting yourself aside. Now, one commentator defines it this way. It's good. It says, consecration consists of spiritual preparation, turning your heart toward God, trusting and having faith in the promises of God, which leads finally to willful obedience. Now, I'm going to simplify that and condense it down to my own definition. For me, consecration is separation and preparation. That's what consecration is. Separation and preparation. So let's walk through it and see what we're talking about. Let's look here in uh, chapter 5, verse 2. In chapter 5, Joshua gives us two directives as he continues this consecration process for the children of Israel. And the first one, circumcision. Verse 2 of chapter 5, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. 
Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on their way after leaving Egypt. And all the people that came out had been, has been, had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. In other words, those men in the desert that have now gone in the Jordan had not been circumcised. They had to be circumcised. Why? Because circumcision was the sign of this covenant with God. It's separation. So let's talk first. Consecration is about separation. And here's what we see here. They had to be separated so that they would be identified as being different and they're, they're God's people separate from the other people. So it's the sign of the covenant. Now for us, there's, there's two dynamics to separation. When we consecrate ourselves, the first deal is we are looking at separation from sin. Separation from sin. I'm going to use the fence picket. Fence picket is a sign, it's a symbol, which basically says, keep out. Don't come in my territory. This is my property. So it keeps out unwanted bad critters. It keeps out unwanted bad people. Theoretically, we know you can just jump the fence, so it's not a perfect illustration. But it keeps people out. It keeps things out. Those things that I don't want in my yard, the fence says, stay out and keep out. That's what separation is all about. That's what consecration is about. Really what we're saying is, stay out of my camp. Now you have to remember the Israelites, as they go into the Jordan, into the, into the promised land, they're going to encounter false gods. They're going to encounter false idols. They're going to encounter some ungodly lifestyles and pursuits and influences. So they need to make a decision and say, I'm not going to let those evil, ungodly influences and gods come into my heart and into my mind and into my spirit. So they consecrate themselves to separate themselves from that dynamic of sin. They put their fence picket up and say, you're not welcome here. When we consecrate ourselves, first what we're saying is, sin's not welcome in my camp. Sin's not welcome in my heart. Sin's not welcome in my life. Sin's not welcome in my spirit. Now, we all sin. We all understand the dynamic that we're not perfect and we sin and we ask confession. There's a difference in that and a, and a, and a decision that says, that's not sin. I'm gonna let sin reign in me and I'm just gonna let sin wreak havoc in my life and I don't think anything's wrong with all. That's, there's two totally different concepts. So consecration says, I wanna separate myself from sin and say those things are not welcome in my heart and in my spirit. But it's also a separation to God. It's not just a separation from something, it's a separation to something. We're separating ourselves to God. And first that's talking about this, the dynamic of dedication. I'm setting myself to God and I'm gonna dedicate myself to God. Here's where the China comes in. This is actually our wedding China that we got when Denise and I were married. We've been married 34 years, so this stuff is a little over 34 years old. You can say it still looks new, and the reason is we just use this for very special occasions. I don't cook burgers and go out on the patio and say, hey, let's bring out the china and the goblets and let's have a good hoedown. <laughs> They're used for very special occasions. They are dedicated to specific things. 
That's what this idea of separation to God is. It means I'm dedicated to God and I'm only used by him. Nothing else, no one else. I'm dedicated for his service. The second idea, though, has to do with identification. Not only am I dedicated to God, but I am identified with him at the same time. Here's this old school branding iron. Now, I don't, I don't know anything about branding livestock animals. I've never done it. But what I've seen, some of you guys may have done this. All I know is it's not always a real pleasant experience for the one being branded. There's kicking and mooing and climbing and spitting and everything else. So it can be a painful experience. But why are you branding them? Because you're identifying those animals as mine. These are mine don't touch them. And wherever they go, you can see the brand and it identifies them as, that's mine. That's the idea of being identified with God. It's as if he's branded on us a new name, a new heart, a new spirit. He's put his name on us and we are identified with him. And by the way, when God brands us and calls us and identifies us with himself, it's not always a pleasant experience. There's sometimes some pain involved in that identification with Christ. But what it says is, I'm his. I belong to him. But he takes it a step further and makes the identification even more personal, which is my wedding ring. This wedding ring is also a point of identification and a separation to someone, and that's to my wife. When I wear the ring, what that says is, I belong to somebody hands off. I'm identifying with a relationship, an intimate relationship, a love relationship. In other words, it's not just a possession <laughs> that I own and that I have, but it's a relationship and it's intimacy involved. And that's when we identify and separate ourselves to God, what God is saying is, yes, you belong to me, but it's much deeper than that. It's a relationship. I love you. You are my bride. And there's an intimate relationship together. So when I consecrate myself, what I'm saying is, what I'm doing, I'm focusing, I'm purifying myself, I'm turning my heart toward God. But what I'm doing is I'm separating myself from sin to say, I do not want sin to reign in my life. On the other hand, I am wholly committed and dedicated and identified with God. And I'm going to be used exclusively exclusively for him and by him for his purpose. So first, it's a matter of separation. But it's also preparation. When we consecrate ourselves, there's some preparation dynamic taking place. Chapter 5, look in verse 10. Because in the story, Joshua gives another directive in this consecration process. It says, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. You remember, Mark alluded to it at Lord's Supper with the Passover that it was a celebration and a remembrance of when the death angel passed over in Egypt. It passed over those that had the blood on the doorposts. 
So it's a remembrance of two things. It's preparation, if you will, of two things. The first is it's a preparation for God's goodness. We consecrate ourselves in preparation for God's goodness. For the Israelites, the manna stopped. When they celebrated Passover, the manna stopped. Now they're going to partake of the produce of the promised land. What a beautiful word picture that is for us. In Numbers 11, uh, there's another word picture where it's kind of a negative connotation if you really read the whole chapter, but it has a great truth in it. And it's when the, the Israelites were complaining about the manna, and so God gives them quail instead. But in Numbers 11, verse 18, it says, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow you will eat meat. In other words, you're going from manna to quail. In the other story, you're going from manna to the produce of Canaan. In other words, consecrating ourselves is putting us in a place where we are preparing ourselves to receive and experience God's goodness. It's also preparation for God's service. We see in the story that the Israelites are about to embark and go into the promised land and take the promised land. So they're going to do what God's called them to do, but this is going to prepare them for that because what they're doing in this Passover celebration is they are remembering the goodness and the faithfulness and the victory of God in the past. And that becomes an enablement and an encouragement that God's going to continue to bring the victory in the future in the promised land as well. So for us, consecration, it involves remembering the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God the provision of God in the past so that we are enabled and encouraged to know that he will continue to do that in the future. So that's what consecration is. It's separation and preparation. Let me end with this. How do we, how do, we do it? How do we consecrate ourselves? We know what it is. How do we, how do, we do it now? Because it's different than it was for the Israelites. We don't bathe. We don't have to wash our hands. How do we do it? Let me say it this way. We consecrate ourselves by being in the spirit being in the word, and being in prayer. We consecrate ourselves by being in the spirit, being in the word, and being in prayer. Exodus 29, 43, 44 says, there I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. It's talking about the ten of meetings with the tabernacle, that God's presence would dwell in the tabernacle. And it signified God's presence. And that's where God's glory dwelt. That's where God's presence dwelt. And there's stories in the scripture where it said the priests could not even do their job because the glory of God was so thick and so full. It's about his all-consuming presence and glory of God in the tabernacle. Today, it's transferred talking about the Spirit. This isn't a message on the Spirit. We'll have a series on the Spirit later, so we can't develop this. But it's talking about now we are the temple of God. We are the temple, and now God's presence and God's glory dwells in us by the Spirit. So for us to, to be consecrated, it's this idea of yielding and surrendering to the Spirit of God in our life. All through the New Testament, you see phrases like, be filled with the Spirit, uh, don't grieve the Spirit, don't quench the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. These are all different expressions that tells us we are to be consumed and completely yielded and surrendered to the Spirit of God in our life and the direction that the Spirit wants to move us. But we're also to be in the Word and in prayer. First Timothy 4, 4 through 5 says, 
For everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Now, this is talking about an issue that we don't really have to deal with as much, but in that, there's this truth, again, about consecration through the word and through prayer. It's about intimacy. It's about connection with the Father. In essence, here's what I'm saying. Time in the word, time in prayer, being yielded and sensitive to the Spirit of God in us positions us, prepares us, and separates us for what God wants to do in us and for us and through us. That's why if you've been to the, to the New Member Orientation, we, we discussed this. That's why one of our key values is personal devotion because that's where it all begins. It's when I commit to being in the Word of God, to spending time in prayer, in time yielding to the Spirit of God to know what the Spirit wants to do in me and through me. That is consecrating myself before the Lord because what that is doing is help giving me spiritual purification. It's helping me turn my heart back toward God. It's giving me time to reflect on the promises of God and it's leading me to willful obedience. It helps me separate myself from sin, everything we've talked about. It comes when we yield ourselves and consume ourselves in the spirit, in the word, and in prayer. So here's the question. Do you want to experience the goodness of God? Do you want to see God do amazing things in you and among us? If the answer is yes, then consecrate yourself. Live a consecrated life. Live a life that is yielded to the Spirit of God. Live a life in the Word, in prayer. Live a life that says, I will separate myself from sin and I will totally dedicate myself to what God wants to do in me and for me and through me. Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.